Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. All right. I am the legendary Burl Bear. True Crime Uncensored, the man over there. Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, co-host extraordinaire. And the man playing with all the wires in the back room, Magic Matt Allen. Well, no neo-fascists. <laughs> and on the telephone, the famous, affable, laughable, charming, erudite outlaw, Seth Ferrati. Hey, Seth, how are you? You're the hardest working man in the crime industry. Uh, I, was, I was an outlaw. An I outlaw. was an outlaw. I broke laws that I thought were wrong. In case uh, you haven't heard Seth on the program before, or if you've been living in a cave with a bag over your head, uh, uh, back in 1993, uh, after two years on the United States Marshal Service, 15 most wanted fugitives, you were arrested for drug trafficking. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why. I mean, I, I was really small time in the big thing. In the big. You got so many exciting projects. It's almost difficult to keep track of them. You got one brand new one. It's just hitting the universe that we want to talk about today. One that I think you put together with another uh, guy who's been on our show a lot, uh, Chris Cipollini. Am I correct? And that has. You know, Christian Cipollini actually has the original idea to this, and um, he brought it to me, and I was like, man, let's run with it. I was like, the mafia, heroin, dope men, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. So as you go back to the Harrison Tax Act and all that stuff. Yeah, we went we went all the way back. We we showed how, you know, prohibition started, the Harrison Tax Act. We show we show how actually the mob was moving into the dope game before prohibition even ended. Well, they were smart. I mean smart from a business standpoint, maybe not from a moral ethical standpoint. But as I'm sure your research showed, prior to the Harrison Tax Act and all that, most of the drug addicts in America were southern white women. We were addicted to laudanum, and you did yeah, because really- all that all that stuff was legal back then. They used to sell it at pharmacies, like over the counter. Yeah, <clears throat> I got a. I have a post here uh, indicating that the Sears and Roebuck catalog in the 1890s was selling syringes with cocaine for how much? Dollar fifty. It was mostly white people. You know, as soon as it was criminalized, where the the racism came in, because you know we could look now. And we could say, you know, the drug war is racist. But a lot of people think this only goes back to the 80s. But in this film, Dope Men, I show that it goes, you know, it goes all the way back to the 1920s and starts with a failed prohibition agent who ended up as the head of the newly formed Bureau of Narcotics, Harry Anslinger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Harry Anslinger, he came up, he grew up in Pennsylvania, so he kind of had, you know, back then it was mostly Quakers in Pennsylvania. So he had, you know, that strong kind of Quaker religious values. Mm-hmm. And also at the same time, he went to work for the railroads as a young man. So that was kind of like one of the big, you know, because back in that time, the railroads were huge. You know, they were oh, yeah. basically like how, yeah, how, like how Facebook and, and Google is now. Back then, it was the railroads. They, they were making the most money, so they kind of held sway in public opinion and influenced all the politicians and stuff with money. So I think this religious and these corporate structures, you know, you know kind of shaped him. And so then when he did get appointed as the Bureau of Narcotics, you know, he was like, you know, he was, he's a racist dude, so I'm, I'm going to go over, you know, the, the blacks. I'm going to go after the blacks. I'm going to go after the Mexicans. I'm going to go after the Italians. 
And there's also some stories about how when he was working on the railroad, a lot of Sicilians were coming over, and he just thought the Sicilians, you know, had all this stuff going on, you know, like they didn't want to work or they wouldn't listen to him or whatever. So he had he had some long-standing, you know, beef against the Sicilians. So when he got appointed, you know, first as a prohibition agent, and and then as the, the head narcotics guy, that was kind of who he went after. Pre-existing, you know, prejudices and biases that he would manifest until. So- it became almost a reality, or at least an operational reality in terms of people being set up and but Yeah, and then, and then like, too, he, he, he kind of ran with it. And I'm not saying these dudes were, these dudes were gangsters, but I, I'm trying to show, you know, there's like this, this hundred-year war, you know, that we've been fighting, you know, since, since the 1920s. You know, on one side is law enforcement with, with Harry, Le- Harry Anslinger, you know, the Bureau of Narcotics, which eventually became the DEA, and on the other side, the dope men, which it was the Italians first, you know, but then eventually, you know, it became the Colombians, the Mexicans, even the African-Americans. So there was this ever-changing scene of characters over the last hundred years. And, you know, they changed and adapted ethnic groups, criminal groups, whatever. But the DEA and, and the government, they kind of, what Harry Anslinger laid down in the 20s and 30s is still I was always kind of amazed, especially as a a drug war victim myself. I was like, how did all this stuff come about? You know, how did we get to this point? So I think by looking back in history, you know, retrospectively, you know, you can kind of, you know, put it together. Like, why why are we at where we are now? How did we get so damn screwed up? How did we get so screwed up? (laughs) Because you're looking back at that time, drugs weren't expensive. And there was no link between crime and drugs in the United States until you get just past the Harrison Tax Act, which was a tax act. Doctors got so freaked out, they stopped prescribing. They didn't want to get in trouble, you because know, they got all paranoid. And so if, yeah. you, if you can't get it from your local physician, you know, you go looking for your uh, unlicensed pharmaceutical supplier, you know, and uh, prices yeah, I go think up. also... Like the Harrison Act and everything that the government did, it kind of it kind of made the mafia who they were, you know, because they didn't become the mafia as as we've known it until you know, like everybody knows the Lucky Luciano, the Commission, the Five Families, but you know that wasn't until like you know early thirties, like thirty, thirty one, thirty two. Right. I don't know the exact year, but before that, before Prohibition, you know, it was still like the mustache peeps, you know, yeah, the, right, the, right. Uh, you know, the black hand, they were more like street corner thugs, you know, extorting businesses in their neighborhood, taking hits, you know, roughing people off, you know, intimidating yeah, them. rackets, that sort of stuff. Yeah, gambling, lotteries, whatever. So it was really, the money for prohibition made the mafia force, you know? So just like the corporations, like you see all different corporations, once the people, whatever it is, get an amount of money, you know, all the, you see it today, even corporations, they're trying to move into different fields before their field dies out so that right. they can keep the money cranking. So, you know, the mafia just did basically what every other corporation in America did. You know, they transitioned. Once they got the money from prohibition, they just transitioned to dope because they wanted to keep that power. Right. You know, they wanted to keep the influence with the politicians. And I would take it even further you know, I, I'm not privy to any of the conversations and probably nobody allow, alive today is, but if you look in the 20s and the bootleggers and, and all the, the, you know, the gangsters back then, 
it was really multicultural. You know, it was the Jewish gangsters, it was the Irish gangsters, it was the Italian gangsters. But I think at one point, and I don't think anybody has ever written about this or, 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 or really looked into it, but we try to kind of show this in Dopeman where, you know, I think at one time, like Lucky Luciano, you know, and all the other guys like Maya Lansky and all the other guys, they sat down and they kind of said, okay, the Italians, we're going to keep organized crime. Jewish guys, you move into finance. Irish, you move into law enforcement and government. You know, and that's how they had all the connections. That's how the Italians had all the connections because the Irish guys moved into politicians and, and law enforcement right. and the Jewish guys moved into finance. So, you know, then they had all three pillars. Yeah. You know, they had the government, they had the finance. You, so you'd always have front. somebody, you'd always have somebody in a position of power in one of those structures yeah. that you could call. Yes. Yeah, so that's how they survived. Because look, when you look at history, I mean, up until the 80s, the mafia was a powerhouse in this country. You know, finally the federal government, you know, said we're sick of this, and they decided to dismantle them in the 80s. And, you know, they're still around today, but, you know, it's not like it was. But if you look like the, the 50s, 60s, even into the 70s, like this was in the mafia. This was when the mafia was at its height. You know, if you believe all the stories, I mean, you know, they orchestrated presidents getting murdered. You know, they, they were like, could do whatever they want, especially like in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. So, you know, you just don't get that power from being organized crime. You know, you got to have the connections with the judges, with the cops. You got to have be able to move money. So they, I think they established all this back in the 20s. Yeah, and this it's interesting, uh, a little parallel here. If you look at Las Vegas, uh, prior to the corporations moving in, Back oh, that when, that would have been this uh, desert in sale. Yeah, to, uh, when uh, it was still the, the the mob, the mob still wasn't the most powerful force in Vegas. It was the old timers, the old established homeboys. Uh, uh, Binion, Benny yeah. Binion. and uh, uh, that's that's where a lot of a lot of power was. And as you know, there's a a hierarchy uh, within the uh, the criminal world. And you know our buddy uh, Punch and his dad. Yeah. And uh, that's like a, a whole different realm. Being a Jim Heist mastermind is another level. The book, the book that's out. Stealing, Stealing Manhattan. Manhattan. Got a Story of book Punch there. and his father. <laughs> but, Check it out. Uh, as, as a line well, awesome the, book. Awesome book. Thank you. But there's a line in there where we say that the five families knew that having uh, judges in your pocket was nothing compared to having an ambassador up your sleeve, which is what, oh, yeah. which is what Punch's family had. It was a whole nother level, plus being connected to the good old-time established families. And it was a level of connections that even they didn't have. And you don't mess with people like that. And people find that out in Vegas, too. You know, you got to watch where you step. And the mob found that out as well. Uh, it's a very interesting balancing act between the different corrupt elements that are basically giving people what they want. And that's, that's what's so strange. Give the people what they want. Or as the line was back uh, uh, when the uh, Harrison Tax Act is the people will have their medicines. Because if, if you look at societies and humans, I mean, humans have been escaping 
and um, you know, using substances forever. So I mean, it, it's not going to stop. That's what, as human beings, that's what a lot of people do. You know, be it alcohol, be it nicotine, be it caffeine, be it cannabis, be it heroin. It's just you know, psychedelics. It's it's been throughout our history forever. So it's not to stop just because the government says you can't do it and there's penalties. People are going to find a way around it. Oh yeah. It amazes me that people think the way you solve a problem is to make it illegal, it'll vanish. Uh, no. <laughs> it just makes it worse. They, uh, there's an entire sub-story revolving around this that is, ult- that is tremendously fascinating, and that is the war against hemp. And that's the plant fiber that isn't um, hallucinogenic, from for for marijuana or THC, and hemp was a easily made, very popular uh, rope and uh, materials, and there was a war against hemp because other financial um, concerns wanted to get rid of it so they could corner the market with their product, and that happened here in L.A. Now the Goodyear. Uh, Goodyear um, rubber and tire company, and really, that is a fascinating story on the uh, elimination of the the trolley in L.A. and rubber and hemp, and it's a whole. It's it's why they were able to get hemp criminalized, so you couldn't even make rope out of it. Weird and yeah, clothing. So if you look things. at that, if you look at that, right, if. You know, there, there's a book called The Emperor Knows Clothes. That, the Emperor Wears No Clothes that goes way into that. Yep. But if you look at that, the pharmaceutical companies and the plastic companies both came online basically in the 1920s. And, you know, how they came online, a lot of the families you know, involved in that were like these really famous names like the Rockefellers and all the other, you know, the robber bears from the industrial age. Yeah, well, so Ken, uh, Kennedy 19- Sr. was a, was a, a rum runner. Oh yeah, bootlegger. Yeah. But if you look at families like the Rockefellers and all these big number, all these other big names, you know, that are historical, uh, you know, in America for having money. You know, most of them they were industrialists. They were they were the robber barons. And at the end of the 19th century, that's when you know they were basically exploiting people. You know, because they would people had to work in their factories like 10, 14 hours a day. You know, they'd get their arms cut off. And they would just be hit. There was like no insurance, no medical, no nothing. They were exploiting child labor. And oh, yeah. in the beginning of the, you know, the early 1900s, that's when, you know, journalists started writing about it. Yeah, and it was so fascinating. That's when the government came in. Fascinating that you mentioned that. Because last week we were talking about the fact that in, back in those days, the big newspapers, powerful newspapers, were owned by those people, arch conservatives. Uh, wealthy, but they hired liberal muckraking journalists and put them on a leash. Yeah. And it was just, don't bite the hand that feeds you, bite all the other hands. And <laughs> so instead of having conservative concerns with conservative journalists, they had conservative concerns with liberal journalists out exposing the corruption of everyone else except themselves. <laughs> Which made... Yeah, and, you know, just... Just like how we talked about how the mafia transitioned from alcohol to, you know, dope. These, these industrials, these robber brands transition from, you know, industrial stuff to the pharmaceutical companies, to the plastic companies. Because they already had the money and now they couldn't make money 
as industrious anymore like they were before. So they had to switch. But they already had the money so they could get all the politicians in their pockets. So that, to go back to your point, that's how they got hemp banned. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's how they got cannabis, you know, made illegal. Because before that, cannabis was used, you know, by all the village healers, by the town healers. Cannabis was used to treat 60 different symptoms, you know, everything. They're like, oh, just smoke some weed. It was like the aspirin forever. For thousands of years, cannabis was like the modern-day aspirin or Motrin or leave. They would use it for everything. But, you know, these industrialists came in. They transferred into the, they transitioned into the pharmaceutical industry. They transitioned into the plastic companies. And they outlawed, you know, the cannabis hemp plant so that they could take over the market. And now, look, lo and behold, 100 years later, we have the fentanyl crisis, and we our oceans are full of plastic. So, you know, I think I think it all goes together. You know, the drug war. You know, the the, the outline of, of of cannabis. You know, the the plastics industry. You know, I think if you really look at it under that lens, you know, you can see. And and I think a lot of people would agree. The last hundred years in America has kind of been the dark side of capitalism. You know, yeah. I'm American. I love, I love capitalism. This is one of the only places where you can come from nothing and you can make it if you get lucky and you work hard and you have the right product at the right time. But, you know, these same people, elites or whatever you want to call them, have been controlling this country for the last hundred years and they're exploiting everybody. You know, they're exploiting humanity so that they can stay on top and have all the comforts and have all the money and keep us, the rest of us just scrambling. Well, you know, it's, it's so blatantly obvious now. There's a medication that uh, I, I take because I need it that is a controlled medication that costs a effing fortune if I don't have insurance, if it's not covered by insurance. But I can get 90 days of that exact medication for 100 bucks, not a 1,000, but a 100, out of India. Well, <laughs> and have it shipped to my house. Right. The rest of the world has much more stringent controls on costs of drugs than we do. And America pays for a good significant portion of the R and D and recouping of costs. Well all I know is that I I went to pick up medication that wasn't covered by my insurance. And they said that'll be a thousand dollars. And I said, For how for how long? Is it for thirty day supply? I said, no, thank you. I could order it out of India. Get 90 days for 100 bucks. Exact same product. Right. And we just built up these industries, you know, like, 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 you know, like, like cancer, right? Like the cancer industry, I don't know what the numbers are, but, you know, I've heard numbers. Like they say it's an $11 billion industry. And then even like, you know, diabetes, they're saying like, you know, it's like a, a $10 billion industry. So, you know, they have created industry, you know, built around getting people sick and then charging a lot of money for the drugs, you know, that supposedly get them better. When, you know, the whole time, you know, if, if we didn't have all this processed food and put sugar in everything, people wouldn't have diabetes. If we didn't use all these different chemicals and, and carcinogens and stuff like that, people wouldn't have cancer. So it's just crazy, man. When I look at it, you know, retrospectively and as a, a you know, journalist and a documentarian, and a writer and even a historian. And I just see, man, all these forces came into play, you know, kind of at the same time, like a hundred years ago, and how they have all affected our country is, is just crazy if you look at where we're at today. So with Dopeman and my other work, I, I'm just trying to show, I'm just trying to get people, look, you know, I'm not saying I'm right or wrong or this is the way it is. I'm just 
laying out the facts as I see them. Right. And, you know, I might, I might be biased because I did do 21 years in prison. So, you know, I've always been searching, like, how did a first-time nonviolent offender end up in prison for 21 years? You know, that was always the big question for me. I got 25 years when I was 22. So I was like, how? I was like, why? Like, this is America. Yeah, who did you kill? You know, so, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm like, I'm just searching. I'm like, why? how did we get to where we're at? And I, the more and more I look at it, it's just, you know, because I'm doing like a psychedelic series too, you know, and I'm doing like a cannabis series. And it just amazes me, like, how, you know, if you follow the, the rabbit holes, how they, they keep going down to the, the same point. And on the uh, synthetic uh, psychedelics, man-made ones, is they try to make them illegal without even knowing what they are. <laughs> no, we I've read an article of... Uh, from one of the law enforcement bodies saying, we try to catch these things as fast as they make them and make them illegal. Why? <laughs> What's the problem? Uh, because somebody yeah. is going to make money off it being illegal. Yeah, meanwhile, there yeah, is a... That, that's what a, it is. That's what it is. There's a psychedelic, I don't know the name of it, you probably do, that they use in uh, uh, drug rehabs and for treating alcoholism in virtually every other country except the United States. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. Like they said, LSD. They said at one time in the '60s, you know, before they made LSD illegal in 1966, like they used to say that LSD could cure alcoholism. Bill Wilson, oh yeah, yeah, Bill W. Was, said that. Yeah, he was praising it to the high heavens. And there was a uh, documentary on CBS on uh, that I saw way back then on how uh, LSD was such a powerful tool for treating alcoholics. The same thing with uh, a, a, MDMA on treating PTSD. Uh, fact yeah, that, ketamine, everything, mushrooms. I mean, I, I, I think, I think it's all good. You know, like, look, I'm not, I'm not a big proponent of like, you know, drugs like heroin or cocaine or, or meth. I think they're really evil, addictive drugs. But you know, I'm, I'm more like a cannabis psychedelic dude. I like the mind-expanding drugs. You know, I, I view them as spiritual, therapeutic, and medical. But, you know, really, at the end of the day, I feel like whatever you put in your own body, I mean, that's on you. If you want to be a heroin addict and you want to live life like that, that's on you, you know? And I don't think it should be criminalized. You know, it should be a medical problem. So, you know, that we go back to, like, dope men. That's what I'm trying to show. I'm trying to show it wasn't always like this. Drug addiction was not always criminalized. This is, like, a recent thing. I'm also trying to show that this whole drug war thing, it's not recent. It's not Nixon. It's not Reagan. It's not Bush. This goes all the way back to this dude, Harry Anslinger, and his views have shaped, you know, his views and his ethics have shaped the last hundred years. If you look at what he was doing and you look now, it's the same thing. Yeah. You know, so why has everything else changed, but this hasn't changed? It's, it's just crazy, man, when you look at it on the face of it. And really, at the end of the day, it's all about money. It's all about control. It's all about, you know, oppressing the minorities so the so-called white elite can stay in power. All right. So let, let's, let's go. Let's run with that. <laughs> let's run with this. Okay. So I'm going to tell you a very long story as shortly as possible. Uh, this is 42 years ago. My best friend from high school has Hodgkin's. And he's been going through two years of chemo and radiation. And he's starving to death. And his husband and wife oncology team, oncologist and surgeon, the Ganses, out of UCLA, um, 
So my friend says, get, take, I, I got to get to the hospital and go talk to them. And I'm going, why would you have an appointment at 6 o'clock at night? He says, just get us there. So we go in. We go through the empty halls of the hospital, get to their office where they tore a wall down and had one office that was supposed to be two. And we go in. The lights are dim. We, go, we walk in. He say, hello. Then they stuff towels uh, you know, under the doors, right? And then they proceed to show my friend how to roll a joint. Uh, I'm on the floor cracking up because my friend doesn't need help with this. <laughs> and the three of them are puffing away. I'm asthmatic. I couldn't join them. And the intent was to, to calm him down so he could eat. Ah, and this lasted for a little less than a week, but he couldn't handle the smoking either because it would just make him cough. Anyone who knows about Hodgkin's, the first serious sign is an uncontrollable cough. And that's what got him into the hospital where he lost half of his insides. So we go back because we can't smoke. Now, the the, the Gansas were growing the marijuana in their office on their windows, ledges. So they were making it themselves. And then they just took a sigh and say, well, okay. And then they wrote a Schedule One prescription for, t for THC. Let's follow this now. This is in the seven. This is at the same time Nixon did the, tac the um, CSA, the, the criminal CSA. Uh, Controlled Substance Act, yes. Um, so you could, through a, through a Schedule One, get marijuana as a pill. And that was my only time where I got to partake. Because we went back to his apartment, and we, we, we each took one. We gave some to his long-eared Texas rabbit, which <laughs> basically forgot how to hop after we gave it to him. Um, so that... so. The therapeutic use of marijuana was well known, and it uh, the the drug helped and got him to eat where he could keep it down and not throw it up. You turn that around, you go to the Controlled Substance Act that Nixon uh, signed into law, and after he signed it, I don't know if you found this, but there was uh, some uh, government officials came to him and said, um. Okay, we have been funding through this program for many years medical marijuana through the government. And if you signed up and got referred, then we were supplying cannabis to Americans. And we've been doing this for many years. But we don't know what to do. And so after many discussions, they said, you can't turn the program off because that would be really ugly looking if it got out in public. So they just said, no more, you just, no more people signing up. And there were people for, through the 80s that, as, you know, that were still around before they passed, were still getting medical marijuana from the government. At the same time, it was being criminalized everywhere else. Wow. Talk about a schizophrenic mindset. Well, uh, do you know who Ehrlichman is? I mean, uh, Ehrlichman? Well, like I'm asking our guest. No. 
Oh, what did you say? What's the name? Uh, John Ehrlichman. He was... Yeah, yeah, I've heard the name. Isn't he like a lobbyist or... No, he was the policy chief for Richard Nixon. Okay. All right. Oh, yeah, he joined and he said in 1971, they said target the blacks and the uh, hippies. Bingo. He said that the war on drugs wasn't a war on drugs. It was Nixon's behind-the-scenes attempt to maintain control and maintain his presidency. Because now he had a way to, from behind the scenes, go after blacks and go after uh, the uh, individuals that they felt were against them. And now they could go after them without it looking like the president is doing it. So he used law enforcement and the new law to target those he thought we're going to derail his presidential campaign. Yeah, the subversive. The subversive. Yeah, the damn society. subversives. Right. See, partisan politics by its very that, nature that, that is divisive. Ehrlichman yeah, in, in, in the interview. You had the Black Panthers. Yeah. You know, you had the Black Panthers. You had, you had, you know, you had the psychedelic revolution, you know, with the hippies. So I can see why, you know, white conservative America was scared because you had two groups, you know, the African you know, community, African-American community, and the younger generation of, of Caucasian white people, I mean, they were really challenging. They were really trying to make a, a change. They were tra- they were challenging that whole 50s white picket fence mentality. You know, they were challenging the war. They were challenging the whole corporate structure. And, you know, you see what happened. You know, Nixon and everybody saw that, and they put the cops down. They were like, no, we're, we're ruling this country. We've been ruling this country. You know, since, you know, whatever the 20s, so we're going to keep ruling the country. And I think you could take it even further to the most recent, you know, uh, reiteration of the war on drugs with, with Reagan and Bush, you know, when they, they, they did all the laws, you know, that Joe Biden, you know, signed it, you know, orchestrated or right. wrote or whatever, you know, that they, they used to convict people like me. That was just a reaction to like Pablo Escobar. And, and uh, you know, narco-terrorism, because they saw what was happening in Colombia and how Pablo Escobar almost took over the Colombian government in the late 80s, and they were scared to death of politicians in this country because at the same time, you know, with the crack era, all the young black kids in the inner city, they were shooting cops and everything. Like, they didn't care. So with people in our own country trying to kill law enforcement, you know, with no regard, and what was happening in South America, you know, they were like, no, this is not happening. And they cranked down and they started locking up. You just decimated the young black males in, in, in you know, the, the urban communities and locked them all up. You know, so it's, it's like every time there's like, you know, like we say we're democracy and all that. But every time there's like this surge, you know, where other people might get power, you know, the government. Oh, they go bad, they go bad shit. <laughs> Yeah, and I think the same thing, like with with, with the mob and, and the heroin. You know, the mob made their money off heroin, so now they were equal players to these corporations and all these rich elites. And you know, that scared them. They were like, "Nah." So you know, but that was a longer war. It took a long time because the mob was so powerful. The mob was so entrenched. You know, and and like I say, you think in the fifties and sixties, like the government, they would actually like treat with the mob. They would sit down with the mob and like negotiate. That's how powerful the mob was. That's what I don't think people understand. And all this power was kind of uh, forged in the 20s, you know, through prohibition. And then when they first got into the dope game, 
That's why you have law enforcement against prohibition. They've changed their name, but that was the original name of the organization. Former narcs, former law enforcement, people who went, this is crazy. <laughs> this, this, this isn't doing anybody any good. Temperance. And so, uh, uh, you know, they're in favor of, of decriminalization, more so than legalization. Because with legalization, you have the same people in control that you have now. <laughs> You're better off decriminalizing. If you look at a country like Portugal, where they finally just decriminalized everything, or uh, uh, Switzerland or Sweden, where they do not have a, a crime problem with opiates. Because uh, if you are uh, have an addiction problem, they have clean injection sites. You could go in the morning, get your shot, go to work. No problem. They're also smart enough in Sweden to know not to lock down like uh, the idiot sticks in America because of this BS uh, COVID scare. And they kept the kids in school. And guess what? Nothing happened except kids learned. Oh, my God. Yeah. Can't have that. Can't have those kids learning not in America. We don't want a well-informed electorate. I love my low-information voters. Where were we? Oh, yeah, I know where we were. So one of the the outcomes on the war on crime, uh, you were a victim, was was to send almost 10 times more people into jail for nonviolent offenses than prior. You know, 50,000 prior up to 400,000. And you have people in prison, and they never hurt anybody. No, it was was crazy. So I would say upwards of 75% of of the people when I first went in in 93 were in there for nonviolent drug crimes. You know, mostly African-Americans, but, you know, they started going out to the suburbs. So... You know, it really, no, nobody got a break, even though the, the, the blacks were targeted. You know, they went out and started getting everybody. You know, that's how I got. I was in that first wave of uh, cannabis and psychedelics when they went out to the suburbs in 93 and started, you know, busting the white drug dealers after, you know, so many five or six years, you know, of just targeting African-Americans. And then when politicians from those areas came out and started saying that they were racist, they were like, oh, no, we bust white drug dealers too. Yeah, yeah we got to go uh, bust some like, white kids. Yeah. Right. You mentioned yeah, you mentioned so, uh, that uh, schedule drugs that came out of the Controlled Substance Act (CSA), where they listed the drugs that were the most dangerous, Schedule One, and down mm-hmm. the line. That's where the schedules came from. And the Pacacta. Um, yeah. <laughs> I've always thought it's crazy. Like, who is to determine? You know, why, why are these, like, we have alcohol, we have nicotine, we have caffeine, we have sugar. All, you know, could be argued mind-altering substances or, you know, some, some type, they alter you, you know, in some way. That's why people crave them, you know, even addicted to some extent. So I, that's what I was always amazed. Like, even when I first started doing cannabis and psychedelics when I was a teenager, I was like, you know, who is to say, why are these substances legal, but these substances are illegal? And, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to control, like, especially, right. like, like, who owns them? <laughs> It's who's making yeah, the money. You can grow anywhere. Yeah, cannabis and hemp, anybody can grow it. So, you know, if you can grow medicine or you can grow something, you know, hemp that you can make, you know, industrial to rope sales, clothes, you know, whatever, all the different things hemp can be used for, you know, how can these corporations make money if you can grow it yourself? They can't. So that's yeah. why everything in this country at the end of the day comes down to money, especially the last hundred years. Yeah, and you, you can't take another country. 
you know, it, uh, you could make it at home in your spare time. And my doctor wanted, because it is there is legal methamphetamine, and it has a brand name, and 30 methamphetamine pills by prescription in the United States of America, $999 for 30 pills. And my doctor wrote me a prescription because of I had a, uh, a brain injury as a child, and I need medically massive amounts of stimulants to be normalized. So he said, it's much safer for you to have methamphetamine than regular amphetamine, and you need this. So he wrote me a prescription, $999, covered by my insurance, however. But Kaiser said, no, 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 no. You can't have that because... Everyone knows methamphetamine has a bad reputation on the street. And this isn't on the street. This is from your pharmacy. Mm. But they uh, still wouldn't let me have it. And uh, Besides, I've told them, you give me $999, I'll be back in 20 minutes with enough methamphetamine for everyone in the building. And uh, in 86... And if you think about it... Oh, go ahead, sorry. In, go ahead. in 86 under uh, Reagan... A uh, anti-drug abuse act. Uh, criminalized well, where's all this data coming from? Criminalized cocaine, but it it criminalized crack cocaine five hundred times more than powder cocaine. That's because they're prejudiced against baking soda. No, powder cocaine was a white drug, and crack cocaine was a black drug. And so blacks would go to prison for five years minimum, and white Americans would not. It well, was you know, racist yeah. the, the thing about cocaine, whether it was powder or whatever, had to be kept in a dark, cool place, which is why there was so much in Marvin Gaye's No. There was uh, a. Uh, there <laughs> was an. Uh, Sorry about that. Some years later, there was an uh, amendment. There was an amendment to that uh, act. Where is that coming from? I don't know. That made yeah, that right leveled the playing field for the two substances. That's uh, crazy. Uh, you know, and it's, a, it's, a, it's the same thing when you look at, like, what are the only two industries where there are no set prices? Lawyers and doctors. Like, everything, and you have no recourse. Like, you know, if you get someone to, to build you a house or to do your roof, it's a set price, and if they don't do what they're supposed to do, you can sue them. But doctors and lawyers, you can't, you can't sue them. There's no set price, and there's no outcome. You know, it's the only two industries. Like, they can do whatever they want. You know, it's crazy, you know, especially as someone who went through the criminal justice system, I always felt like, how can lawyers, like, there's no recourse. Lawyers, you know, oh, they aren't making, oh, it might be this, it might be this, and you got to pay me this much, and then I'm going to keep charging you more. So it's, those are like, you know, and like you can't go to the hospital and say, how much does this procedure cost? You know, there's like no list. There's no set price. It's like whatever they and the insurance company decides. So I, I don't know, man. It's all it's all a racket. I, I just think, uh, you know, we've been in this dark age of capitalism, and I, I think, you know, my work and, and especially my film Dope Man kind of sets the stage and, and kind of shows how all this began and, and why we are where we're at now. The thing about capitalism and democracies don't fit well together unless your capitalism is wisely regulated. Otherwise, you wind up with very rich and very poor. And then you have a revolution. Say you want a revolution. If you've been carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, you're not going to make it with anyone. Anyhow. 
Did I mention that? You still there, Seth? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, I thought maybe we lost you there for a minute. So, in, in this documentary that uh, you put together, it's a, is it like on DVD, VHS? That's on So, right man. now, um, yeah, right now it's on Amazon. It's a good place so we're, for it. We're doing a roll. Yeah, so it's on Amazon, and um, you can rent it. I think they're, they're renting it right now for like three ninety nine. You can buy it for nine ninety nine. What's it and called? It's going to be on. It's Dope called uh, Dope Men, America's First Drug Cartel. Wow. Yeah, and it, it, you know, it looks at all that early history of the mob, how they formed, how they first got into the dope game. It looks at famous names like Lucky Luciano, Jack Legs Diamond, uh, Arnold Rothstein, and others. And um, it, it really just kind of lays it out. But we're doing a rollout, so we're, we're, we're going to be on the, you know, like Amazon, Google Play, iTunes first. And then in about 60 days, it'll go to all the, uh, you know, the advertising video demand, like Tubi, Roku, and hopefully a streaming network, too. So, you know, we're shopping for a streaming deal right now. Fantastic. Excellent. 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 Uh, what, what other projects you got going on? Oh, man, I got a bunch. So, um... You know, I got, I got my, my film that I wrote and produced, uh, White Boy, about White Boy Rick. That's on Netflix right now, so people can go watch that on Netflix. That's a White Boy Rick story. But that's, you know, that's been out like three or four years, and it's, it's had pretty good success. It was on uh, Stars, and now it's been on Netflix twice. But then I got, uh, I got this other one called Nightlife, which is about a group of violence interrupters in St. Louis. It's, it's going to be up uh, on Amazon in the next week or two. Then I got my, my Psychedelic Revolution series, which we've been screening you know, I screened on Bicycle Day at the Discovery Con of San Francisco. We just screened at the big mass conviction in Denver. And um, that's going to be out probably by September 15th. And that goes back and looks like why LSD was made illegal in the first place and all the outlaw tennis. Yeah, because the like Life that. Magazine. The Life Magazine did yep. a big article on LSD. Bam, illegal. They did the same thing with MDMA. Yep. Bam, illegal. Yeah, so my LSD series, you know, it looks at all the people. It looks like the Mary Pranksters. It looks at King Teasy, you know, Timothy Leary. You know, then it looks at the outlaws like uh, Alzi Bear Stanley, um, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love in the first episode. And then in the second episode, we're going to go into like Leonard Picard's story, you know, on the missile silos. Right. So we're going to go into Timothy Tyler's story. We're going to go into Mark McCloud's story. And then the third part of that, the episode three, we're going to come to now and we're going to show how... You know, basically, we, we lost, you know, the medical people and the researchers and the scientists, we lost like 50 years right. of research because it was made illegal, you know, and, and I think, you know, psychedelics really are kind of are kind of following the path that was, you know, kind of trailblazed by cannabis. Because bo- both of these substances, I mean, throughout history, and you can go back thousands of years, both of them have been used, you know, medically, therapeutically, and, and spiritually, so... You know, it was just like everything we've been talking about, that's why they were made illegal. And finally, you know, we're getting to this point where people are like, hey, you know, we're not sleeping. You know, I think, really, I think the pandemic woke a lot of people up, man. A lot of people had a lot of time to think. And um, people started reading and, and, you know, listening and and watching stuff. And I think, you know, maybe we'll finally get to the point. Or maybe it's like people like my generation and your guys' generation of people are getting older. And, you know, we're like, you know, we're sick, we're sick of this, you know? We know I, I knew when I was 13 and I first smoked marijuana, I knew that it wasn't like heroin. I knew. You know, so, and the government, you know, in the, the Reagan years, they're saying marijuana is the same as heroin. I knew it was. I knew it was a lie. So, you know, I, I don't know, man. It, it, uh, 
it's been a long journey, but I'm just trying to, with my work, just like I did with my journalism and my books, you know, just trying to expose stuff. I'm trying to show the history. And, you know, of course I'm biased because I did 21 years of prison. So, you know, but this is, this is the history through my lens, how I see it from the outlaw side. Well, that's the best way to see it, I think, based on my own experience. I mean, I think I mentioned once before on the show, first time I had LSD, it was legal. It was still legal. Cost me 25 bucks and two weeks to get it. MDMA, my doctor gave it to me. Still legal. Came with an instruction manual. Said, Burl, take this. <laughs> and then come back and tell me about it. And uh, and then she said, you know, the, the uh, we're going to make this a Schedule 1 drug. We've asked for hearings in five cities across America to say we've been using this in therapy to help people such as yourself. And... Uh, we want the government not to make this illegal, but they did anyway. Next show is. Thanks so much for joining us. It's all the Baha'i faith, good deeds, nice people, and a history of being persecuted, abused, and insulted. Let's face it, not everybody appreciates the teachings of the Baha'i faith. The Baha'i faith encourages racial unity and interracial harmony, so racists don't like it. The Baha'i faith upholds the equality of women, so sexists don't like it. The Baha'i faith proclaims the harmony of science and religion, so the superstitious don't like it. And because the Baha'i faith teaches that tolerance and love are the very foundations of a healthy community, extremist fanatics don't like it. So, if you're a racist, sexist, superstitious fanatic, chances are you won't like the Baha'is at all. But if you have an open mind and a kind heart, hey, call us. You sound like a Baha'i already. For more information on the Baha'i faith, simply look in the phone book under Baha'i. B-A-H-A apostrophe I. Always great having you on the show. We love you. We love having you here.